being challenged. What happened during the pandemic for us was that we felt surrounded by these very harmful leadership models. So, you know, we had men like Bolsonaro in Brazil dismissing COVID as just a little bit of the flu. Um, And he was saying that while, you know, bodies were piling up outside the morgues in some of these big Brazilian cities. And meanwhile, let's take the UK. We had a very hyper-masculine leadership in the form of Boris Johnson, who delayed locking down because of fears to the economy, with the result that the UK had one of the highest death rates um, in Europe. So we were surrounded by these, these very toxic forms of leadership. And then you had the Black Lives Matter movement, and I, I think it really brought home the fact that diversity isn't really about one or the other thing. It, it, it just has to be a more composite understanding of how we create spaces for people who come from communities that are generally underrepresented in how you know decision-making and, and the distribution of power and assets happens across societies. These challenges to traditional leadership have given rise to a more nuanced and compassionate understanding of what it means to guide the way forward. I think myself and my colleague Natalie, who I, who I work very closely with, that we are feminist leaders, just felt this real sense of urgency, you know, to kind of say, well, look, what would, what would a feminist approach, a feminist leadership approach to handling COVID look like? Um, what might it offer us? What might the benefits be? And we could see a real appetite among our networks, our friends, our colleagues to really explore that. There's a real demand that organisations across all sectors, you know, whether it's businesses, government or civil society, uh, need to demonstrate very actively that the values that they espouse and, and talk about in public are also the values that they, you know, follow and implement and demonstrate internally. As we navigate the complexities of our times, one thing has become crystal clear. The call for feminist leadership has never been more urgent. Welcome to Our Voices, Our Choices, and the second episode of our three-part series about feminist leadership. My name is Ilona Toller, and today we'll explore the realm of feminist leadership within organizations and institutions, unraveling its profound potential to foster positive transformation. We'll uncover the essence of feminist leadership in action. We'll take a closer look at how it is implemented on an organizational and institutional level. What exactly does it mean for an organization to embrace the principles of feminist leadership? For this, we'll hear from three women who have thought about feminist leadership on an institutional level extensively. First, we'll hear from Lisa John, the Secretary General of Civicus, a global alliance of civil society organizations and activists dedicated to strengthening citizen action and civil society throughout the world. Our second guest, Leila Billing, is a leading advocate from the initiative We Are Feminist Leaders, which supports individuals and organizations to embed feminist leadership principles into the way they lead and work. Also, we'll gain insights from Serap Altinishik, 
CEO of Oxfam Germany, an organization focused on alleviating global poverty. She will add yet another inspiring perspective to our discussion. Together, they will share their wisdom, experiences and thoughts on feminist leadership in practice, unveiling its power to shape a more equitable and just world. So, so I think it's, it's much easier now for, you know, entire generations or entire societies of people to understand the value of feminist leadership and what it looks like in practice than it was perhaps before the pandemic. For Lisa John, who has championed human rights and international mobilization for two decades, the kind of challenges we are facing today require a much more evolved and nuanced form of leadership. Which is you know, very much about servant leadership, very much about being able to engage many different sections of society, being able to find ways to connect, you know, uh, new and divergent perspectives and being able to allow innovation to actually thrive, right? And I, I think there's just a huge demand for organizations to recognize that leadership is not linked to structure. So it's not just about, you know, management forums and leadership teams and, and the formal, you know, ascribing of roles, but it's really about unlocking leadership at all levels, right? And And really making sure that people have the ability to exercise their agency, to create flexibility and agility in, in, in the way that they work. So I, I really see it as a continuum of approaches, starting from uh, the fact that if we really are serious about women's leadership in the workplace, then workplaces have to be far less Uh, rigid and far more flexible, actually, and inclusive than they were before. And it also means flexible in terms of hybrid working options and, uh, you know, your ability to stagger or compress or expand your hours. Really understanding the needs of work-life balance is non-negotiable for feminist-led organizations. Lisa says, if we want more women to exercise their leadership at work, then workplaces need to be more flexible and more respectful of the different priorities and identities people have. Everybody who's here is doing this because they want society to benefit. So I think bringing that into the culture of work where we're not taking away the inspiration, the, the spirit, the reason why people are with us in the first place and, and making sure that institutions nurture that, I think is very important. But it also means we're allowing people to be continuously self-aware uh, about who they are, the kind of perspectives they bring to different spaces and, and the way that they're affected by uh, structures and, and conversations as well. So as a woman of color, uh, I'm very aware uh, when I'm you know, in particular platforms or groups of how many other people of color there are uh, in, in that space and, and of, you know, which geographies or backgrounds they come from. How does class as a factor play out in, in you know, the way that conversations are happening? And I, I often find that I sense quite a lot that based on your language or your nationality or, you know, which part or which hemisphere of the world you come from, you will have people resonating with ideas that are familiar with them, with, you know, language that is familiar to them. 
mm. more than the ability to actually reinforce or echo ideas or experiences that you're unfamiliar with. Leila Billing, co-founder and senior advisor on gender, youth and movement building at We Are Feminist Leaders, believes that feminist leadership is all about transformation. And her conviction becomes most evident when she talks about the inspiration behind the initiative We Are Feminist Leaders. During the pandemic, while witnessing how very traditional and masculine leaders dealt with this new reality, she and her colleague Natalie posed a compelling question. What would a feminist approach to leadership look like? We felt that there was a real desire among the people we knew, the people we worked with, to explore how leadership could be different. And, and don't forget, at the same time, what we were seeing was, you know, the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement after the death of George Floyd and, you know, the, the, the kind of very unjust death of Breonna Taylor, the pandemic, the anti, anti-racism movements, all of this This was kind of colliding at the same time. And we were asking lots of questions about anti-racist leadership, feminist leadership. Um, and We Are Feminist Leaders really grew in order to kind of respond to that, that desire and that sense of urgency. So what we do in terms of feminist leadership is to work with emerging leaders from around the world. And by emerging leaders, I mean, perhaps these are people who are stepping into leadership positions for the first time. Perhaps they're middle managers in their organizations. And these are emerging leaders who want to learn more about what feminist leadership is, how to practice it, what it looks like in different contexts, um, and people who just want a space to explore that a little bit more. At We Are Feminist Leaders, Leila and her team work with the participants over the course of 12 weeks in an online program. They build community and a network of strong feminist leaders committed to doing leadership differently. Aside from training and mentoring individuals, they also work with organizations on particular projects. So whether that those might be projects about kind of feminist approaches to collective care, they might be projects that involve analyzing how power is working in a particular organization. I think we're all about kind of building community, partnering with others who are doing similar work and being part of a, a wider network of feminist leaders across the world. For Leila, one of the most important insights about feminist leadership is the realization that there's no checklist or 10-step guide for running an organization in a feminist way. Rather, It's about embracing a dynamic and organic approach. What it looks like can and should be very context specific. So it's not a prescriptive model, it's something that is a journey, it's fluid, it's changing. And the thing is, the reason, one of the key reasons why I say that is that how feminist leadership operates in any context should respond to the particular power dynamics or the structures in any given context, and, and those are going to vary. But, of course, there, there might be common threads that you would see in, in feminist organizations or more informal feminist groups, no matter where they are. These common threads include, for example, more collective forms of leadership. One of the things Leila sees more and more are co-leadership models. Founders, NGOs, and grassroots organizations that try to move away from a unilateral leadership model 
and unilateral decision-making. And this doesn't mean that, of course, um, we've abolished any hierarchy. I don't think that's, that's what feminist leadership is saying. But it does mean that, you know, there are spaces and different sites of power um, and that power is being redistributed in, in different ways. Another common thread amongst organizations that try to implement feminist leadership is a focus upon care. Leila says that's not a coincidence. Doing the work of feminism requires us to kind of be immersed in quite violent systems of power, right? We are often dealing with abuses of power, and this this causes harm. You know, as we as we come up against these systems of violence, this has an impact. And feminist organizations understand that they have this organizational duty of care to create a space of care where perhaps there are principles of doing no harm, where employee well-being is, is really valued, um, where, you know, the organization is really focused on centering and valuing their relationships, their partnerships, being much more human, human-centered, if you like. While collective care is something we hear about less frequently, self-care has become a ubiquitous term in today's society. However, it's crucial to understand that these two notions are connected. The two ideas are not completely distinct. Something I've learned a lot from African feminists is how they are interlinked. So, you know, this idea that when we care for our own well-being, we're better able to care for others. But at the same time, collective care enables us to reinforce our own self-care practices. We need an enabling environment at work to be able to practice self-care. I can't prioritize my own self-care if I'm working 12-hour days, six days a week, right? I need, I need an enabling environment to do that. I asked Leila what collective care can look like on an organizational level. She says it's really about getting the basics right. Are we able to pay people what they deserve? Are they able to take the leave that they deserve? During my conversation with Serap Altinschik from Oxfam, Germany, Serap also mentioned an example of care within an organization. At Oxfam, Employees who are parents have 10 extra days off work per year for times when their children are ill or need extra attention. Everyone has the right if they want to increase or decrease their hours of work. They don't have to even say uh, exactly in detail why they want to increase or reduce their hours. We've got um, different working groups where they work about uh, how can we work well Uh, so to what does it mean and uh, coming up with recommendations or proposals which then uh, so to say is taken forward and implemented by HR and it's always I mean it's always work in progress right Leila Billing adds that it's not all about policies and rules also it's really about the power of small things small things that we can do institutionally Things we can do consistently over time can have a really, really powerful impact. And to give you an example, small things could be anything such as kind of checking in at the beginning of meetings so that you're not just jumping straight into kind of like the agenda. Creating some spaciousness in meeting agendas 
for those check-ins or check-outs. Making sure that you're allowing people to visit a colleague who's sick in hospital or who isn't well in bed. Making time, making an intentional act to talk to a colleague about something else other than work every day. The power of of really, really small things, I think, is really, really important in feminist work. Leila passionately emphasizes another vital aspect when it comes to care within an organization. The significance of adopting an intersectional approach, recognizing the various identities and experiences that make up an organization, is pivotal to nurturing a truly inclusive and supportive environment. Something that I worked on recently, you know, was with an organization where the sick leave policies did not cater to those people in the organization who had chronic illnesses. You know, they weren't fit for purpose for for those colleagues with with those types of of disabilities. So that's just one example of, of how care can be practiced in a feminist way. During our conversation, Leila also pointed out that there are aspects of feminist leadership we might not hear about very often, as they are rarely discussed in conventional conversations about leadership. I've been really inspired by the work of uh, Zimbabwean activists, Hope and Rudo Chigudu, on this. They encourage us to talk about this idea of love and joy and leadership. And what they say is, look, the work that we do is as feminists is really, really difficult. And it's really important for us as feminists to kind of celebrate our resistance, to lean into love, to create this space for joy. And what this does is it it helps kind of sustain us, you know, for the longer term struggle. So, yeah, I think it's really important to talk about leadership and love and joy and and celebration, you know, and how do we embed that into into our work? Another important aspect that echoes our discussions from episode one of this podcast series is that feminist leadership starts with working on the self. It all begins with self-awareness, understanding one's own perspectives and reflecting on our position within a group of individuals. This is all about making space to interrogate our own relationships to systems of power Um, to interrogate our values, to explore how our own biases affect uh, the way that we show up in the workplace, the way in which we show up as leaders, um, to kind of reflect, hold ourselves accountable, and then make course corrections. One essential aspect of this introspection is thinking about privilege, recognizing our position in networks and understanding the advantages we have. Because if you haven't interrogated the ways in which your privilege affects how you show up as a leader, it will affect your leadership practice. You won't be able to understand how power is really operating for other people in the workplace. There will be things you can't see or things that you don't understand. I remember being about to go on maternity leave uh, in in a former job of mine, and I remember someone very senior in the organisation. You know, a very privileged woman. You know, could afford multiple nannies. Someone who never took public transport. You know, kind of saying to me, "Look, how long are you taking for maternity leave?" And I and I kind of explained that I was I would be taking all of the maternity leave that I was entitled to under under the law. And I could tell, you know, this colleague really wasn't happy with me and said, "Well, look, you know." Just get a good nanny. 
just get a good nanny and come back sooner. You've got an important job. We need you back. And that was just such an excellent example of her class privilege showing up in the way that she behaved as a leader because she couldn't see that not everyone was in the same financial position as she was and that not everyone had access to the same level of childcare and that life with children looked very, very different for women who were not on a similar income to her. However, Leila also reminds us that privilege is not the root cause of these systems that create inequality. Rather, it's a result of these existing systems. Understanding this dynamic profoundly impacts how we lead. Seeing privilege from this perspective can help us understand the limitations we encounter. But at the same time, It's not about feeling guilty about having privilege, because I think guilt is something that leads to paralysis. What it does is it makes members of groups who don't hold the same privilege as us feel the burden of alleviating us of our guilt. Yeah, which is which is a very harmful dynamic. But I think we need to ask ourselves, what can we do as leaders to disrupt the very systems that lead to the accumulation of privilege in the first place? How can we make sure in our everyday interactions we're kind of interrupting this perpetuation of privilege rather than contributing to it? Ultimately, feminist leadership begins with self-reflection. Personal transformation, then, can be an important precursor to wider organizational change. Fortunately, there are tools you can use to help with this process. So, for example, some good tools I can recommend to you. There's a great tool called the Wheel of Privilege, you know, take that away, interrogate the wheel of privilege. Um, the organization Just Associates has some resources, one of which is called the Power Flower. Go away, do that work individually as a, as a starting point. According to Leila, feminist leaders need to move beyond personalizing issues around privilege and focus on the bigger picture, identifying the systems that sustain oppressive structures and inequalities. The key question should be, what systems are in place to sustain oppressive structures? And what are the systems that need to be changed and adjusted? And I guess the hard lesson in feminist leadership is that change is often incremental and it can be quite slow. It's In organizations, it's, it's quite rarely big and explosive and revolutionary, Unless there's an organizational crisis, so something like a funding crisis or perhaps an organizational reputational scandal. So it, it takes patience and a willingness to kind of chip away and take small steps. And Natalie and I, my colleague, we often talk about lighting small fires. So creating spaces to talk about, to interrogate privilege, creating spaces to talk about how it shows up in the organization and really going from there. So that's my top advice, is, is that there's no kind of quick technical fixes. It starts with the self. When setting up a space for reflection in a group, we may encounter a common challenge. Not everyone feels equally safe in a certain environment. After all, what feels safe for one person may not feel safe for someone else. To address this, it's crucial to be intentional about how these spaces are set up so that open and honest conversations can flourish. We're very conscious of how hard it is to navigate some of those power dynamics in these spaces. You have to build a ramp to be able to kind of create a space where people are able to openly share 
particularly about sensitive matters. That requires intentionality. It takes time. It takes patience. It does not happen overnight. And it takes a lot of nurturing. It's preparing people to expect to experience a degree of discomfort in the space. You know, um, these conversations are never easy. They can cause discomfort, but also making making sure that people are clear between the difference between what is uncomfortable and what is actually unsafe for people. At the end of the day, a lot of people hold on to traditional leadership models and hierarchical systems because they're afraid that a different, more collective approach might not be as effective or it might take too long to yield results. While some of these concerns are valid, that does not mean feminist leadership doesn't work. In order to do it well, it requires quite a bit of intentionality and thinking through which types of decisions are really important to take collectively and which ones involve fewer people. You know, if, if it's done well, we can tap into collective group wisdom. We might be ensuring more marginalized voices are heard through decision-making processes. And it can also be a way of distributing power. It's important not to forget that power dynamics can still exist even within a collective decision-making process. But Leila says there's so many different types of collective decision-making. Every organization can find one that works for them. We have consent decision-making. We have consensus. We have delegation. I could go on. So I guess my advice is, you know, having a bit of time to explore, um, not just why you feel collective decision-making is important and having consensus among that in the group, but also taking time to explore these different models of decision-making and weighing up the pros and cons of each one. You know, go away and trial and test something and adapt, see what works well, see what doesn't, um, reflect on what the benefits have been. And I think that can be a really fruitful, fruitful way forward. Take the leap and give it a try. Embracing feminist leadership requires courage, but it's worth it. Touching on something that also has to do with courage, Serap Altinishik mentioned something that we will talk about in more detail in episode three of our podcast series. She opened up about the courage it takes to ask for help and to show that we all sometimes have to venture into the unknown. Whomever I need, I will consult, I will ask for support, and we will go for it. I think this is something that is very much needed. So I hope by showcasing that I also sometimes take risks, yeah, uh, and that if it doesn't work as I wish, that I'm capable to say, hey, sorry, I thought it will work out. What did we learn next time? We will be more conscious about the things that could maybe pop up as well. And on the other hand, also showcasing, I took the risk, let's celebrate, it was a success. There is a diverse range of approaches and opinions surrounding feminist principles. Allowing these differences to exist also takes courage. We have different feminisms here. And we have also people who are not coming from this movement, which is okay. It's also absolutely fine. And how can I ensure that they understand and that they also see how can they support the movement and where should they step back because they can harm? Lastly, Serap reminds us of the significance of leading by example. Adhering to the same standards of commitment and care 
towards a common goal, towards ourselves and towards the organization. And this too takes courage. For me, it's important that I try to not work longer than I have to. If there are urgent cases, right, then I have to. <laughs> My colleagues in uh, Hargeza, they can't also sometimes say no because they have to fix it immediately, right? But in general, not working longer than the contract says. Lisa John from Civicus agrees that courage is at the heart of feminist leadership. Knowing who you are and deciding how you're going to show up. And that's not a thing you do once a year. Rather, it's a daily practice, an ongoing process. If you're not exercising that muscle of being authentic, of being intentional, of being uh, bold about your choices and your, your, your voice uh, on a daily basis, you're not going to be able to take that big leap or the big transformations that you think are important. And I, I, I find this particularly true of you know, the alignment between your personal and your political experience. So when at the workplace, you know, there may be a context where you're more enabled to speak out, you're more able to express your views and values. But if you don't insist and create on that, that same space in your personal life, there is a disconnect. You know, you can't be living in two completely you know, fractured spaces where in one aspect you have agency and the other aspect you have complete disempowerment. When Lisa first started out in her role as the Secretary General of Civicus, she decided to have a personal, one-on-one -on -one conversation with everyone who works with the organization. So she set up a series of meetings and informal catch-ups with all of her colleagues, whether it was playing online games or talking about their lives. And that was just a game changer for me because I, I realized that all of the information uh, and, you know, quote unquote, intelligence I was getting about my work was from very few people who have direct access to my role, right? And then I was missing out just a whole range of perspectives on on how the organization operates and how it engages and, and how it, you know, the organization in a way then shows up for other people uh, because I wasn't having those one-on-one -on -one conversations. So I started doing that every six months where I would actually then set up a series of conversations, make sure that I'm speaking to especially new joiners. We now have quarterly induction meetings where around 200 people show up and we talk about what Civicus stands for. And I think for me, that's really important. It, it, it's really about making the effort to hear about the space you represent from people you would normally not have a chance to interact with and therefore really challenge yourself. In our conversation, Lisa emphasized the importance of embracing discomfort, echoing an aspect that Leila mentioned earlier. Instead of avoiding difficult situations, confront them directly. If there's an issue you want to avoid, run towards it rather than away from it. Even for Lisa, this was initially difficult because she, like so many of us, didn't like conflict very much. However, it's essential to push past this discomfort, embrace it, and trust that others will use their time to help the bigger purpose too. 
be committed while staying flexible. It was just quite a hard experience where I, I finally just had to tell myself that, you know what, if I don't speak up, there's nobody else in the system who's going to be able to speak up either. So I, I think now I feel I've, I've got much better at not avoiding uncomfortable conversations and maybe also encouraging other people to, you know, really formally table some of the discomforts or or things that, you know, upset them with confidence that we do have the ability to hear each other out and find ways to address those uh, issues in a way that's respectful to all parties. It should really never be about avoiding difficult conversations, avoiding things that, you know, threaten or challenge us. It should really be the ability to trust each other enough, you know, to be able to have those conversations and find ways, if not overcome, then at least address and mitigate and manage the negative consequences of some of those situations. According to Lisa John, time and trust are vital in feminist leadership. Trusting people's commitment to the organization gives them the freedom to focus on what's essential to them at that particular moment. I think that, you know, just the fact that we all work in hybrid and dispersed environments, nobody is going to be able to micromanage anyone else uh, at this point. Uh, so you, you do have to trust that people are going to make choices that make sense to them and they are going to show up with the kind of ambition and intention that they have. And it's actually worked extremely well, I think, when, when that has happened. At the end of these conversations, both Leila and Lisa pointed out the fact that in all of these endeavors, we have to be realistic. We are creatures of habit. We're heavily influenced by what we've grown up with. So it's often tempting to fall back into our old, familiar ways rather than to try and achieve what we aspire to. That's why, at Civicus, Lisa and her colleagues have worked out a clear definition of every stage of Civicus work. How information sharing needs to happen, what consultation should look like, and how certain decisions are made. And it has really changed the way that we operate. You know, it, it's really helped improve not just the uh, visibility of information and decisions and, and how decisions are made within among staff, but also improved the ability of the board, which is the governance body, and uh, the secretariat to understand, like, who makes decisions on what and how does, you know, accountability work. When you actually have a document that states your accountability very clearly, it's much easier to follow that than for me, for instance, to sit here and say, oh, I actually believe so much in collective leadership. And then tomorrow something challenging happens and I'm like, okay, now I'm going to take the decision because actually I'm the leader. I mean, that it. if you don't have a document that explains how decentralized and distributed leadership works, it's not going to happen ad hoc. Feminist leadership can take many shapes. It is context-specific. It takes courage and it takes effort. But there are shared elements that all of these approaches have in common. It's really about the value you bring, uh, not just to the 
the end of the journey but to the journey itself right and the ability for people to experience uh, you know trust meaning purpose agency and their own power to change their context and and to evolve and transform themselves and others in the course of that you know engagement or journey and i think that's what's really important to me uh, as well as an activist as a professional as someone who's part of this global alliance that we continue to reflect and reinforce those those values and and that ability to uh, really shape an experience of uh, solidarity and collective thinking and collective action in in everything we do in this second episode of our three-part series about feminist leadership We explored what this concept can look like, witnessing its profound potential to foster positive change. Throughout this episode, we learned that feminist leadership is not a one-size-fits-all model. Rather, it's a dynamic and context-specific approach. It requires intentionality, self-reflection, and a willingness to have difficult conversations and confront tough questions. We saw that feminist leadership fosters collective decision-making, care for employees, and the creation of inclusive spaces where all voices are heard. It encourages leaders to recognize their privilege and work towards disrupting the systems that perpetuate inequality. As we wrap up this episode, we invite you to join us for the final part of our three-part series where we will dive into feminist leadership on an individual level. We will have the privilege of speaking with two feminist leaders, each with their own stories about leading with courage and compassion. Join us as we continue to uncover the power of feminist leadership and its potential to shape a better future for all.